The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? Doing great today, John, uh, but I'm always doing great when I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, so it's just another beautiful day here in the Smoky Mountains. Beautiful day, I think, everywhere today. It was uh, really nice, shockingly, 72 degrees in New Jersey, so uh, yeah. pretty damn shocking for November. Yeah, not bad. For I'm, I'm not a big fan of the cold weather, so uh, yeah, this this is some uh, summertime weather when it shouldn't be, but I'm not, I'm not going to complain about that one bit. Now, today, maybe a couple topics, but one in particular that I really want to talk about was a, a new book I got from... Dick Bourne over at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway. You may know him from being the famous author of 10 Pounds of Gold and The Big Gold, as in The Big Gold Belt. His new book, The Crown Jewel, the NWA World Championship from 1959 to 1973. Of course, you can get it at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway website, mid-atlanticgateway.com. And Dr. Tom, I was on the site, and I see a nice, lengthy, great article from you. Well, actually, that was a, a uh, email that I sent Dick. Um, thanking oh, him he for, just put it on the site. Wow. Okay. Well, cool. no, he asked me. He asked me if I minded uh, if he put it on the site, and I said not at all. Um, uh, I got to tell you, I've known Dick for a while now, and it's it's, uh, it's been gosh when when the first one came out, I guess, or the first. Um, Oh, the first one he did about the belts was, or about the world, the, about this line of world, NWA World Championships was uh, 10 Pounds of Gold, I guess, or um, that is the name, right? 10 Pounds of Gold? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah, my head's a little, little spinning right now, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I, I've known him for a while, and he's put out some great books. And uh, this one, though, really hit home. Uh, because he uh, he hit on he hit on a topic, man. I gotta, let me let me start from the beginning. I started. I was born in 1959, right when this this belt came out. And but but the one thing I remember uh, from first watching TV was um, you know wrestling and. When Dory Funk Jr. won the title in 1969, it was somebody that we had watched, uh, my God, every week for the past, well, hell, I was, uh, well, for for at least the past decade. And, uh, I, again, born in 1959, so I guess I became aware in uh, uh, 64, 65, right ever. But anyway, the Funks were always the heroes in West Texas. And when we moved to East Texas um, and we started going regularly on Friday nights to the Coliseum, uh, we finally got to see Dory Funk Jr. wear the world championship live, you know, the crown jewel live. We In El Paso, uh, when they would show it on TV or even in pictures in magazines, it was always in black and white. And um, when we saw it live for the first time in Houston, uh, it was so um, 
awesome. I mean, it was that how you would imagine it, and and we didn't see it up close, obviously, but we saw it as he came to the ring, and it was just. Uh, I mean, you know, I I could be romanticizing, it could be in my habit larger than in my head uh, than it really was, but at the same time, that's the way I remember it, and it it looked really really cool. It had the feel of something special and and uh, majestic about it, and it, it 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 was gold and it was real gold. And I guess it was ten karat gold. Looking at the after reading the book, um, but it was just so so cool because if you if I I would look at it in, in pictures in, in the in the wrestling magazines and I, I've seen pictures of Pat O'Connor wearing the belt and Buddy Rogers, Luthez. Gene Kaninsky, now Dory Funk. And I would always try to look and see what the writing on the belt said. And uh, I remember, and, and again in the book you can see it even clearer, you know, champion of the world uh, on, on on top of the belt, and then uh, heavyweight wrestling or wrestler was on the belt. So it it always held a special place for me because Dory Funk Jr. won that title, won that belt uh, in Tampa, Florida. And I, I remember wanting to see what the writing said inside the belt. You could see the outline, the, the red NWA letters, and, and uh, it wasn't until later that I saw it was two wrestlers on top of that. And, and it was just a cool-looking belt. So uh, when I read the, bo- uh, read the book and saw some of these other pictures that uh, Dick had put in there, I had no idea... It had a nameplate, had no idea uh, how thin the metal was, how thin the gold was. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard this story years ago about Tim Woods and, in Atlanta when he was uh, working with Dory. And and uh, Dory Sr. came to the ring, and, and as Tim had the title, he did a a, uh, a screw job finish, and, and Tim got the belt held it up and and senior came in the ring and pulled it out of his hand pretty hard and it, and it cut Tim's hand pretty good so um it was uh it was always of interest to me it it, it was always one of those things that uh man it, it just it had so many little details that I wish I I could have uh uh could have seen and I went Many gosh, it's been well over ten years ago now to uh, do a seminar in in Ocala with Dory Funk at the at the Funkin Conservatory, and and I told him about that belt and asked him. You know, I knew the the story about someone taking the belt, stealing the belt, apparently after Sam Munchnick's wife uh, passed away and, and they had the reception at the house and someone apparently took the belt then. Then I read in this book that Sam's children have no recollection of, of the belt ever being in his house, but, but they may not have a recollection of it. And Sam, they, they may not necessarily remember it because they were so up close and personal with it. It might not have caught their eye. I don't know how interested they were in the wrestling business back then, but when you know, Dory, we were, Dory and I were talking about it, he said, uh, Sam had called him after they retired the belt and offered to uh, sell it to him for the for that uh, for the current price of gold. And Dory passed on it. He said, "I I, I wish I would have got it then because now nobody knows where it's at." But uh, it, it was a very very cool belt. And in this book, uh, when I heard Dick was coming out with it, I sent him the picture I had that I had taken years ago when Briscoe came back to Houston, and they were re-leathering the big uh, the ten pounds of gold, and uh, he had to wear the the uh, O'Connor belt or Dory belt as we called it, and uh, I took that picture and and it was just just happened to be. It was Wrestling News Magazine with Norm Keitzer and Jim Melby, and uh, they published it. And I, I had been writing them for them for a few years, but at that time, a couple years, I think. And I sent that to him, asked if he had that, because there's just a, a couple times, maybe maybe two-week process or two-week interval or however long it took, maybe a month, that Jack had to wear that belt. And I didn't know if he had that picture, but then he wrote me back and said, I'm going to put it in the book. 
<laughs> are you okay with that? I thought, well, hell yeah, that's great. So uh, there, there's a lot of history behind it, and I, I'm really I'm a, I am a history buff when it comes to this business, especially, and just the history that, that Dick tells in there about Dick Hutton and Luthez. And uh, this, this, the the crown jewel was the first belt that the NWA actually owned and actually bought. The first belt was uh, Luthez's personal property, and it just fascinated me because I'd seen you know, pictures of Freddie Blassie, the Destroyer, and uh, uh, other guys with the Thez belt. And I remember asking Freddie when he came to LA during my first year, and. Uh, uh, I think it was the second time Freddie came in, and I asked him, "What belt is that you're wearing uh, in this picture?" It was in the program, and he said, "Oh, that's the Thez belt." And then to hear it mentioned in the book as well, you know uh, that that's how the boys referred it to as the Thez belt. And then when he Thez dropped the title to uh, Dick Hutton, he didn't have a belt to defend. So the NWA. And the history of, of these titles, just the whole history of, of the NWA and how it uh, uh, segues into the WWWF and the AWA and all these uh, historical happenings uh, really do center right along this, uh, right, right in line with how this belt came about and how they did things back then. And how, uh, my God, the flim flam and the uh, the the lengths these guys went to, and I'm not just talking about the promoters. I'm talking about the boys back then, the guys who uh, they had to have a champion back then who was capable and able to take care of himself in the ring because double crosses and uh, screw jobs were not that uncommon, and you've always had to be on your toes. Some promoters, some company or somebody was looking to gain power in the business and say that they are more legitimate than the next guy. And it was just such a, it, it is such an, an interesting history. If you're interested in the history of professional wrestling, it's always been entertainment, always been showbiz. Uh, Toots Mott, Billy Sandow and Stranglers Lewis are the guys who figured out you can't have six and eight hour matches and, <laughs> and make a lot of money. Uh, they finally figured out how to do programs and uh, create a little more showmanship to it and um, make it more exciting where people uh, are willing to come out and get into it. So, yeah, I uh, the book, Crown Jewel, is highly, I highly recommend it. Um, if you are a wrestling fan, old school or new, uh hopefully you can appreciate the the history of it and just some of the cool looking belts they had back then and the and the little details the the diamond on the crown at top on top of the the belt the the blue world that was right at the right below that and and then all these other uh details the 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 nameplate and things like that it's uh it's incredible the, the research that goes into it and and finding pictures because uh, Dick mentions this in the book. You know, back then, most of the shots were black and white. It was just the way promoters operated back then. They operated, you know, week to week, and uh, they had a budget. And and you know, a lot of times it was feast or famine with those guys. And that that that's another thing I respected the hell out of those guys for because it was that that rugged frontierism, individualism, whatever you can want to call it. These guys uh, fought and clawed their way to, to making a living. And uh, with every bit of hardware, every trophy, every gimmick, every, every little bit of razzmatazz and, and uh, showbiz they used um, to... to to draw a house or to make create interest and and to give it a uh, a different shine or an aura on it and you know that's that's a, a huge part of what attracted me as a fan and I think today too too many people are jaded and don't appreciate 
the little things like that, which which really back then they were big things. But looking at it now, with all the other glitz and glamour and lights, camera action, uh, they're little things now. But it, it's all the pieces and parts that make up professional wrestling. And Crown Jewel is a huge, huge piece and a huge, huge part uh, of the history of wrestling. And in a hell of a book, I highly recommend it. Do you know why Pat O'Connor was like kind of the first one to get that version of belt? Is, is that kind of uh, explained and talked about? Is that known? Well, well, yeah, he says he talks about it in the book. He he beat Hutton, and Hutton did not have a, a belt back then. They were already in the process of telling all the promoters uh, we, we need to get a belt. I mean, they, the promoters would have to pay four percent, I think, at that time to join the NWA or and, and the champion, or maybe it was the champion's payoff. Um, or the the gate would go four percent towards the dues or champion. It's it, it's in there. But Dick Hutton beat Luthez. Luthez took his belt because that was Lou's uh, personal belt, his personal property. And when Hutton beat Thez, Lou didn't give the belt to him. So they went for a two full two years of Dick Hutton as a world champion without a belt. Um, when O'Connor beat Hutton, I think they, in the book he says uh, O'Connor went 11 months without a belt. And they were in the process of having a belt made, and they had it made in Mexico uh, by this jeweler. And I have one guy who, uh, when we talked about the book, said he he's he knows or has heard about the jeweler in Mexico. His son is still alive, and he's reached out to the son to find out if he has any kind of uh, plates or molds or anything like that to go along with it. But Dick Hutton didn't have a belt to drop to O'Connor, so O'Connor happened to be the champion at the time when the belt was made. So I, I think it was Munchik who presented it to Pat in St. Louis, and that's that's why he got the first crack. Now, the book, of course, is dedicated to the NWA World Heavyweight Champions of the late 50s through the early 1970s that were proudly wore the belt and defended the crown. Pat O'Connor, Buddy Rogers, of course, Lou Fez, Gene Kaniski, Dory Funk Jr., and Harley Race, and of course, like you mentioned, Dick Hutton as well. Really cool, really cool history, and I really recommend going to Mid-Atlantic Gateway and getting all the books. You've got to get the big gold. you got to get 10 pounds. you got to get uh, Crown Jewel. They have the United States Championship book, and they have the Mid-Atlantic Championship book. So all the books over there are so great, and they're so easy to read. They're not like crazy long in length. I mean, they're really easy, very palatable. I highly recommend all of Dick's books. I think they're well, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I, I think they're all awesome too. And and part of the awesome uh, element it brings to it is if you are an old school fan, and even if you're not, but especially if you're an old school fan and you remember seeing these things being defended when growing up or or even after you'd already grown up or were still a fan, there are stories etched into every championship when they step into the ring man every every uh life is made up of moments and every moment uh i remember seeing a championship match um you know whether it was the texas title or uh the continental title or uh whatever championship it was the belt while I, I I hated when people said it's just a prop, a bro. Well, yes, yes, it is a prop. But at the same time, there are stories burnt into that prop. There's stories built into those matches, and it all goes along with it. It 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 in in uh, Portland, the the tag belts were. Uh, the, the basic championships that were going around at that time, but they had little intricacies in in the plate and on the side plates and even in the leather. You know, there's stories that go along with the whole thing, and it fits, and it's 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 a huge piece of the puzzle, and it's a huge piece of being a fan. And I remember when they would bring out new belts and, and like the the uh, cast. Texas championships of the 70s that kind of look like the WWWF titles of the 70s and they were the cast by Nikita Mulkovec or whatever his name was and and they were just cool belts because there was so much detail in them and they just looked um, interesting and cool and 
And you can also get that book on Amazon, I believe, too. If you can't do it on Gateway, Mid-Atlantic Gateway, which, yes, I agree, go there first. But if you can't get it there, get it on Amazon, but get it regardless, man. Oh, yeah. And and most likely on midatlanticgateway.com, you go to Crown Jewel, and it will uh, send you to Amazon anyway. So you can get it both ways. Obviously, there's a different way, but Amazon is probably the the lead or the the way to go for all books really really everything yeah. now nowadays but uh, you're right definitely amazon i just love the quote that you put out there it said reading crown jewel and looking at the pictures was like wrapping myself up in a cool blanket and going back in time to some of the greatest times of my life just what and, a quote, it, great quote it, well and, and that's why i felt it wasn't a warm blanket it was a cool blanket where you just kind of sat there and man it's like ooh. When you hear that music and and you and you you get that vibe and it's like uh, uh, I was I was out today and China Grove came on and I thought the Doobie Brothers were outstanding and it just you can't help but uh, the endor you get the endorphins uh, uh, dancing in your head and, and it just flows all the way down. That's what what this book did to me. It, it brought me back to uh, the days when I was uh, young. I'm still naive, but the days when I was young and even more naive and uh, uh, had a, just one focus, and it was to to be a part of this, and uh, that was cool. Life is made up of moments, and real quick, I know we have other things to get to, but I have to mention this too. I had a moment yesterday with Lash LaRue, and uh, we talked last week about going and sitting at Brad uh, Armstrong's gravesite. And every time I do that, something that it's it's a moment, and it and it's it's uh, I do it for me. Um, it 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 makes me feel better, and it makes me still connected. And Lash, when we're sitting there talking, he says, "Hey, man, let me show you what I do." He does these uh, festivals, he does these uh, events where he does caricatures of people, and he says, "Let me show you how I got this gimmick." And and he he says, "This is an easel. I I pull it." with me wherever I go and it makes me look you know I I have he has a professional setup so we bring it out and he brings it out and and rolls it to where Brad and I are and uh, he sets it up and all of a sudden he just (laughs) the paper is right there and he he has his easel set up and he just starts drawing this character of me man and and I thought this is a cool moment we're sitting here with Brad uh, we're, we're, we're enjoying the day and we spent a good three hours, three and a half hours out there, uh, just reminiscing and, and talking about, uh, um, free flowing and talking about just, just the past, the present, uh, and, and what's going to happen in the future. Nobody knows, but, but it's moments like that, uh, that make, life really what it is in the end <clears throat> pardon me and uh it all goes back to uh i'll never forget that day especially yesterday and, and you know I, I have this really cool caricature and and lash is a is a damn talented artist a damn talented guy and he, and he he's confident and uh uh has his beliefs which is is the biggest part of life is just have your beliefs, have something to stand for, and have a code to go by. And, and it was really, really good talking to him yesterday, too. So I just want to mention that real quick. Yeah, I'll touch on that, too, because I just thought that was so cool that you were hanging out with Lash. I didn't realize how close he was with uh, Brad Armstrong. That's awesome. Oh, my God, man. Uh, as, a, as a young kid, Lash has a hell of a story to tell about. You talk about, well, everybody has a story about about their life and what's what's happened and we all have experiences that's that's again moments and experiences are what makes up life but but he's been through it and brad uh was one of those guys where once again uh he could be everybody's best friend and i think after he talked to you for for shoot five minutes you'd think he was your best friend and he would be but at that time when Lash was, was coming into WCW, Brad had already been around, and, and, and he was the veteran at this time, and he knew what it was like to have good veterans and bad veterans help you and hurt you. So Brad wanted to be one of those guys who would help, and he helped Lash, and Lash always appreciated it. He's from Alabama, and uh, he he got it, and he loved it, he loved the business, and, and he had enthusiasm and passion, and Brad picked up on that too, and it's really easy uh, – Again, back then, 
not just when I was starting out, but even as I got more years uh, under me and behind me in the business as well, I, I saw the ones, the guys who really had the passion for it, really loved the business and were willing to do whatever they had to do, didn't care about the trips. They, that, that was part of the adventure, man. Where do I sign up? Just just come on board, sailor. We'll take you, brother. Doesn't matter. And that was Lash. He was one of those guys. And and, and Brad uh, it w- was very influential to him. And, and Brad was influential to a lot of people in this business, as, as you as you well know. So he was close to Brad. And, and he had a lot, of, a lot of experiences with Brad, a lot of good times, as we all did. And, of course, like you mentioned, the caricature, uh, excuse me, caricature, he is a great little uh, artist there, great drawer. Oh, my God, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Talented beyond compare. And uh, uh, so, we, yeah, we had a good time. We had a good time talking about it. I asked him, how do you do that? What, what is the, you know, you have to have some connection because I went over to his easel after he drew me. Uh, in, in extorted and distorted, extorted. How's that? He drew me in an in, in extorted and distorted, um, disillusioned view the way he saw it. And then I drew a picture of him the way I saw it on, on the easel too, just kind of a very plain side profile. So I love that, you know, he's a good artist. He said he's got belief, he's got his code. I was just like, just in my head, I'm like, thinking, I'm like, man, I guess they did cross paths when LaRue was very young in WCW and, and Brad was the veteran. It just, for some reason at first, I was like, oh, I wasn't putting two and two together. I'm like, ah, of course, WCW when, you know, LaRue, uh, when last LaRue was really, really young in the business. Oh, yeah. He he was really young in the business. And then uh, he, he got an opportunity to be signed in the WWE developmental system. I'm not sure if you're aware of that or not. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, he was in Cincinnati. And, and I remember uh, when I was uh, doing the developmental system for WWE back then, I would fly to Louisville uh, for OVW, spend, uh, I think I would fly in. Monday morning, spend Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday with your TV. Then I would go Thursday, Friday to Cincinnati. And, um, yeah, I think they did double TVs. They did both TVs, uh, Cincinnati and OBW, uh, on Wednesdays. They would just come in. They would do the OBW or the HWA TV first with Les Thatcher coming in and, uh, they do it at the Davis Arena, the old Davis Arena in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and then uh, I would go t- Thursday and Friday to Cincinnati and and check those guys out there, and that's that's where Lash was. So, um, you know, he he's he's been around long enough now where uh, he's matured, he gets it, and um, uh, still loves the business and and loves his life. So that's always a plus when you when you can uh, leave like that and. Get out with at least some of your sanity and in most of your hair. <laughs> that is key. You're you're lucky in that department for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure about the sanity, but I do have my hair. That is right. Yes. Good. Good point. Yeah. Now, yeah. We, you know what? That's a good point. But my hair covers most of it. Thank you. Right. <laughs> with you know Brad and visiting him and stuff. Is that like a like how is it a yearly trip? Uh, like how often do you actually go and do that trip? Yeah, it's it's certainly a yearly trip. Um, I, I if I had more time during the uh, the rest of the year, I would. But definitely this time of year, because uh, Brad passed away November first, and we always I I for the last eight years. Once again, this is just for me, man. And um, now that last for the last. Uh, Two years. This was his third time to sit, sit out there. Um, so, w- with Lash sitting out there, and we 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 do our our small talk. And hey, Brad, how are you? Great. Hope you're doing good. We know you're doing good. We just want to let you know we're here, and um, we're doing good. And we were doing good. It is a yearly thing, and um, it, it's 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 a re- you know what. I don't know that I can say I'm into a, a regiment, but at times I get that way, and I think we all get that way, and I have my routine. 
But this, at least, is still uh, showing up and sitting there. And it's, it's a nice nice place, nice cemetery. It has some, some trees there. This time of year, it, it can be really chilly. Uh, I've gone on November 1st, and I've gone a couple days um, uh, after. Like, I've, I've, I've had to go in December because it just didn't have any free weekends in November. One time. And that's it can be really cold. But it's a nice place to uh, sit, reflect, and just lay back and uh, let whatever comes to you come to you. And we did that yesterday, and we spent three hours, or close to three and a half hours, I want to say, there, just just uh, letting it hit us the way it hit us and and talking about what we were talking about. So uh, it, it's good for me because there's, there's no one else, and I, I don't believe there ever will be because I knew Brad for over 30 years, it can, they can never take his place. So, um, anyway, yes, it's a yearly thing that I look forward to all every year, quote, unquote. Very cool that you do that. It's cool to bring Lash along with you as well. It's a very, very cool. Get to honor your old friend. I think that's awesome. But just to uh, completely change gears, I know we were talking about Crown Jewel, talking about Brad, about Brad Armstrong, but a lot of times on the show we always talk about your wrestling career. I mean, most of the time it's a lot of your training stuff. I think that's what so many people know you for, you know, training Vince, training Shane, training Angle, training Rock, training Henry. So, I mean, that's, that's something. But i just like to kind of delve into your wrestling career. We've went all over the globe, all over the map. We've talked about, you know, Continental. We've talked about Memphis, talked about all Japan. We've talked about WWF, Smoky Mountain. And everywhere in between, but we never talked about New Japan Pro Wrestling. And I just wanted to touch on it, not too much, but just kind of briefly talk about it. But do you remember at all you had two stints, one in 1981 and one in 1989? i got to tell you, uh, Rock Rims from California, he came out with When It Was Big Time, the history of Northern California. And he just came out with another book, speaking of books, called Legends and Icons about Southern California. And I talked to him, oh my goodness, probably earlier this year. And uh, he finally wrote this book. Both books go all the way back to the 1800s. I mean, they they cover the history of professional wrestling when whoever sauntered in there. And he sent me some pictures of my match in the Olympic with Fujinami from 1980. And I, I, I don't think that match is out there anywhere on, on film. Oh, I, I take that back because he sent me DVDs. Hold on. Uh the first time I went in 81 was with, I guess, Fujinami. Oh, here's the DVD. Hold on here. Uh, he does have it. He has uh, Fujinami. Oh, he does. He has Fujinami. That was 8 eight eighty. so August 8th, 1980. Uh, I worked with Fujinami in the Olympic. Then in Japan, 1981, I worked with Fujinami. And... Um, I do remember, that was my first trip to Japan, uh, with New Japan, and I went with the Samoans, Ken Patera, Bobby Duncan, uh, Mr. F Mr. Ueda, Mr. Ito, I think he, it was his name, and uh, some other guys, man, and I got to tell you, I, I had heard about it. Everything in Japan is supposed to be rough and rugged. And it was, again, I've said this before. Yeah, yeah, it is rough and rugged. But, but so is professional wrestling. And it was supposed to be like that back then. I don't think, uh, at least it never came across this way to me, I, I never got the impression that they were trying to hurt me or, or anything like that. I, I think uh, they wanted to see if I was, what I was going to do about it, but but all you do is hit them back. All you do is come back. It's wrestling. It ain't ballet. And uh, I love Japan, man. It was it was it was good. But once again, the first first tour I went for five weeks. It was it was working. We had a couple of days off in there, yeah. But um, I obviously it's a different culture. It's a different. Uh, it's a different frame of mind when you get there. It certainly is. The hotels are, we, we had mostly American hotels, but the hotels are certainly different. Sometimes we did sleep on the floors. You had mats 
and you sleep on the floor. And everything is compact in Japan. Um, obviously, being on an island, you've got to keep things close. But it was so cool. And I, I, I've always wanted to experience that. One of, one of my goals was to go to Japan. And I did. And um, it was everything I would hope it would be and then some. Got to got to taste every forbidden fruit. Well, let me say that. Not every forbidden fruit. But there was, there were some things over there that were going, whoa, man. And, and I didn't know if I was going to get back. So I wanted to try it, and I wanted to see it, and I wanted to feel it, and I did. And, man, not just in the, not just in the ring, but, but, you know, outside the ring. The culture's great. The, the, the cities were, were, were just so cool. Seeing the Japanese um, symbols, or what are they called? They're called something. Uh, and and to, to realize that every character in, in uh, the Japanese alphabet means whatever it means, and, and to, to even learn that, to be able to do that, just was, in, man, it intrigued me. It fascinated me. Not enough to learn it, but just enough to to go. This is this is pretty cool that people can learn it and follow through with it and uh, work with it. Because that, uh, it, you know, it's there. There are no A B C D. It's all picturesque, and you have to know what this character means and this line means and how to how to write like that. I, I just. Um, I was flabbergasted, but it was a cool. It was a cool time. I worked with Fujinami a couple times in Japan, and uh, he was very cool when I when I first got over there. And then the second time I went over there too, he came over and and talked, and we it was it was a, it was a good time. It was a very very good time. You know, Tatsumi Fujinami is known as one of the all time greats. Did you kind of agree with that assessment? Yeah, I certainly would. He 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 definitely was one of the all time greats, and. Uh, when I saw him later on, too, he was he was still one of the all time greats. So yeah, he he definitely uh, knew his stuff and deserved everything he got. Did you have any sort of relationship with Antonio Inoki? Well, I, not necessarily. I worked with him over there a couple times, but but not really uh, a release a relationship uh, necessarily. When when he came over for his Hall of Fame induction. Uh, we spoke. Now, <laughs> it had been it had been a while since I had been there, and he's gone through a lot of guys, and you know. So, but but he acted like he remembered me, which was nice of him. And you know, I uh, I, I talked to him then when he was inducted, and he was cool. But no, I never, um, you know, except for in the ring and and getting paid. What do you think of what he's been able to do over there? You know what I mean? Like, he's kind of like a cultural icon, really, in Japan. Well, yeah. Uh, he was on the, the Japanese diet, right? Was that mm-hmm. what it's called? The diet? the Like a senator or something? Well, you know, I, I, I think what he did in Japan, uh, especially in the 70s with Ali, um, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. But those obviously in the business did know that he was looking to take over the country. I mean, there was Baba and and there was Anoki, and they were uh, you know started out with Ricky Dozan and were, were partners and and friends, but rivals always. And he, Anoki, had a had a plan, had a strategy. And knew that uh, the way to to succeed is to to become a hero in Japan, and and that's what Ricky Dozan did. Uh, that's why all the the Americans, you know, the the gaijin, the foreigners, come over. They would be the heels, and uh, the Japanese people had Ricky Dozan to look up to as a as a hero and a conqueror, especially after the war. They they needed they needed a hero. They needed a god, and uh, I know he grew up in that culture in that institution of trying to be the man, the guy that that would be the savior, if you will, to Japanese uh, people. And 
you know, it's it's not unlike over here too. The guys who who make a name for themselves uh, in wrestling or or even other sports, and then go into politics um, because you have that drive, you have that uh, performer's ego. Even though you may not be a politician uh, necessarily, you learn when you're in this business, you damn sure better be a politician. And if you're a top guy, you you already are a politician by by proxy. You you do have to uh, have something to believe in and and. Uh, have people follow you and have people get behind you. It's the same thing in politics. And I know you've heard this, that when Ventura won the governorship in Minnesota, he says, you know, you think wrestling was bad. Holy Christ. This political stuff is, is mm-hmm. yep. doesn't even touch it. You know, and I, I get that. So uh, Inoki was never a fool. He, you know, how do you talk Muhammad Ali you know, the greatest of all time at that time, and, and I'm sure maybe some will argue even today, and I, I would certainly, I, I would believe that argument. But but he convinced this guy for a lot of money, no doubt. But but I know he had enough pull, enough push, enough drive, enough gumption and gall to to think, to believe in his heart of hearts that Ali would come to Japan and put a wrestler over for whatever amount Ali wanted. Anoki was willing to pay it and do it. Uh, but in the end, if, if anyone looks into the story, and I've asked a few people about it, um, and then I've read about it. But the only ones who really know were Anoki and, and Ali, for sure. But but when once Ali got over to um, uh, Japan, he, you know, he said, "No, I don't. I don't want to lose." And I know he had too much on the line until they came up and decided on the rules, and uh, <laughs> and it went downhill from there. So, you know, I, I I've got nothing against that, especially because it is what it is, and this is um, showmanship, sports entertainment, whatever you want to call it. But on the flip side, so is boxing. And there, there is certainly a, an aspect to boxing. But it's like an amateur wrestler going into pro wrestling. And, you know, you got an amateur boxer uh, going into, into professional boxing. There will come may, – maybe <laughs> – I'm not saying all boxing is at work. I'm saying boxing is business. And I'm saying there have been instances if if – where there where there have been uh less than honest decisions let's say that less than um honest punches in the ring man have you ever seen a boxer throw a punch and miss by a mile and the guy take a dive i have and then i've talked to boxers and then i've talked to other people and rip rogers used to box and rip was a pro and knew he knew what he was there for and he told me how it works same thing in wrestling. Not everybody needs to know, though. That's the whole thing. You feed uh, a couple guys, or you feed a guy like Mike Tyson a couple of tomato cans, and and he thinks he's a, the champion of the world. Well, hell, the fight game, uh, any kind of fight, I think, is is ninety percent mental. If you can psych the guy out, you you got him beat already before he goes in. And and that's that's again, that's the appeal, and that's what Anoki used. Uh, I think even with some of the boys that came over from the States, you know, when I first got there uh, in 81, I was in awe of the guy. And to be able to get in the ring with him, oh, my God. So it was very cool. And and um, that was the interaction with him. He was a total pro. Uh, and, and at that time, I knew whenever I went to him, I knew his status. I knew his standing. I knew he was the boss. So so I knew what my job was, and that's what I did. Pretty amazing if you just think about Ali and Anoki and how much like mainstream press they got you know, everywhere. And it has a great book by Josh Gross called Ali versus Anoki. kind of goes into the whole backstory and, and obviously that fight. And, you know, whether it was a work or a shoot or what, it, uh, Ali ended up injured after that and was um, not, you know, 
too great. Not that it didn't really affect his career, but if you look at his record after that, you can kind of, maybe if you're Inoki, throw out the claim like, hey, you know, I think I led to the down. Obviously, he was on a downturn, I think, anyway. You know, if you look at it just age-wise and everything. But you know what I mean? If you really look at it, it's like, okay, you know, 53-2, and two, and then, you know, he finishes off 56-5, and five, you can say, hey, you know, I, I – I have a claim. I, you know, I really hurt right. him. He really battered his legs really, really he, well. Right. <laughs> Even if he didn't, by God, he did. And he's going to yep. say it until the day he dies. And and, and he should. Uh, what? And I've seen the book out there. That, that is on my to-get list. And it, it, I, I keep forgetting about it until you just mentioned it right now. But is the conclusion that he felt it was a work or a shoot? So, you know, not to spoil anything, but it, uh, it was a shoot. Oh no! Yeah, I, I definitely believe it was a shoot. So definitely, because if if it was a work, uh, he would have put uh, put Anoki over, or Anoku to put Ali over. They they wouldn't have done that unless there was no other way to do it. And and uh, Anoki had too much to lose. Ali in his head, he had too much to lose. They weren't. Neither one of those guys was going to do the job. So beat me if you can, kid. I'll see you out there. And they were saying that it kind of led to his next fight when he fought Ken Norton again. Basically, his legs were really bad. He ends up winning the fight by unanimous decision, but they were saying he was like kind of uh, beleaguered in it because his leg strength wasn't what it were, should have been because uh, you know Anoki really kicked the crap out of his legs. So he really kind of puts credence into Anoki did some damage, even though well, he never stood up. <laughs> right, right, right. The, the, the thing is, in any sporting event, especially where you have money involved, uh, you do want to create an interest. And instead of just saying these two guys are going to fight, let's have a little interest behind it. Let's have a little backstory behind it. And so, you know, Mike Tyson was the baddest man on the planet a while back. Mike is not. What is Mike 5'10", if that, two, mm-hmm. 220, if that, and I, I stood next to him. Um, don't get me wrong. I don't want to box him. I don't want to fight him. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is I'm sure Mike was good. And Mike was going to be the referee at WrestleMania one time when he fought Buster Douglas over in Tokyo and got knocked out. So wait a minute. Hold on here. You're the baddest man on the planet, and Buster Douglas is a is 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 not really a name. Let's just put it that way. He mm-hmm. wasn't really. A, he wasn't. He wasn't Ken Norton. He wasn't uh, Joe Frazier. He wasn't Muhammad Ali. He was Buster Douglas, and he hadn't really had a whole lot of profile, high profile fights. He knocks out Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet. Okay, might have been an instance of I don't know what what it would be, but but I have my my guesses, and anything like that, especially in the fight game, uh, I've just I've just seen a few too many things that I question everything, especially when it's televised. I usually have a pretty good eye when I think, uh, let's just use that word shoot one more time because nobody really knows what a shoot is, and nobody really really has ever seen a shoot unless they've seen a shoot. And and you'll know the difference um, sometimes, most of the time. Uh, it, it's just an energy, I think, that, that you, you get off. But I believe, yeah, Anoki had way, way too much on the line. Ali figured, eh, I ain't doing it. And uh, he wasn't going to uh, submit to the rules that they had originally. And he said, nah, hmm. we either do it my way or the highway. And that, that's that's how it wound up, man. So, But, but I, I, I do think it's great that Anoki used that in his history and use that in his legacy. And, and it's something that will always be a part of his legacy, kind of like Kaufman and, and Waller, you know, that that's, that's no one else in the business has those claims. Well, claim to fame with, with Kaufman, but I mean, you had boxers who would, who would, uh, referee uh, wrestling matches once in a while and, and knew what the story was. And, and then you had Mike, you know, as a referee with Shawn Michaels and, and Steve Austin, man, Mike's a huge wrestling fan. And uh, I, I was just clicking around the other day. I don't know we're getting way off topic, but i got to say this because I was clicking around the other day on YouTube and I saw Mike Tyson and superstar Billy Graham in an autograph session. And uh, Mike's rattling off names. Pedro Morales. Uh, what about uh, Lou Albano? What about, uh, uh, oh, man, he just kept, he kept rattling off old school names. 
And Superstar goes, how do you know this? He says, man, that's all I did when I was a kid. I watched wrestling. That's what I wanted to be. I'm not what I wanted to be, but he says, we watched wrestling as kids. And and that was it. So, anyway. Think about Tyson. His grandmother, not to make excuses for him, I guess his grandmother passed away, and he took Buster Douglas a little too lightly. But I noticed with him that if, if you're a little bit bigger, not that Holyfield's really that much bigger. He's really much just kind of taller, and obviously Lennox Lewis is a lot bigger. But if you bu- either, A, bully him around, Tyson was kind of more one-dimensional, or if he landed one of his knockout punches like he did to Buster Douglas, Douglas shockingly gets up. You knew he's deflated and done after that. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. Like, like he, sure. he's like one. Of, he's he's basically a bully. And if you bully the bully or you stand up and like, oh my god, how the hell did this guy get up? Yeah, Tyson right. was done. Ali was just, uh, you know, obviously six four, so he's a lot taller. He's a great athlete, great uh, mental strategist as well. So, uh, if people always say I think Ali, just kind of getting way off topic, but Ali would probably destroy Tyson if if that would ever happen. Well, you know, no doubt, no no doubt, because, uh, again, going back to the early days of wrestling, you had to know how to protect yourself from the ring uh, in case somebody really tried to hook you and, and, and beat you. You know, then you had to you had to be the, the better hooker, I guess. Um, and, and, again, going back to what I said earlier, mentally, uh, getting inside the guy's head, that's, I, I truly believe this, that's, Sometimes, not all the time, but most of the time, I think it's ninety percent of the fight getting inside the guy's head and and really playing mind games. Or I I truly believe our mind is is our brain is the most powerful muscle we have because if you really believe it, I believe you can do it. And if you believe you can't, that's the old saying. You know, if you believe you can, you can. If you believe you can't, you know, you can't. You're right either way. So uh, I I I. I for the longest time, uh, I understood it, but I but I didn't subscribe to it. Once you subscribe to it, and once you truly believe you can do anything in the world, you can do anything in the world. Now it's it's simple; it's just not easy. I mean, you, there are but but once you find the path you need to go down, and once you find the elements and the materials you need to accomplish that goal, uh, you can do it. And guys like Anoki did it. Uh, when he built New Japan Wrestling, and Baba when he built All Japan Wrestling, and even the guys in the territory days, especially the guys in the territory days, uh, who would come in and and set these towns up and run weekly and and supply guys um, with enough income they could survive and and live their dream. You know, um, you got you got to have that that. First of all, I think you have to put courage first and then confidence. And you have to have the courage to know that you got the confidence and 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 it really does um it does happen once you, you figure that out that that the only thing holding you back is you and there's the energy you put out and the energy you bring in and uh you gotta stay uh, you gotta stay focused and you gotta work hard. With the New Japan Pro Wrestling, just to get back to that you also faced another absolute legend, one of the greatest of all time. This, of course, is when you make your return in 1989, Jushin Thunder Liger. What are your thoughts on Jushin Thunder? He was fun, man. I, I watched him uh, train with the young boys. We we didn't train with the young boys um, on on that tour and didn't train with them any tour, actually, because we were coming on a different bus and they had to get fade. But I would watch him train with the young guys before the match. And uh, his first name was Frankie. Well, they called him Frankie. And and he wore the mask while he was working out. But he would, but he would make one of the guys scream and just, and just kind of laugh. And you couldn't see him laugh behind the mask, but you could see him laughing like when his body's shaking. And, and he was just he – was, he was incredibly talented. Very, very talented man. And uh yeah, I, I, I know I was in a six man with him. Um I don't know what other what other matches I had with him. I just know that because somebody put that on oh, Twitter. I was gonna say Facebook, but maybe it's Twitter not too long ago or last year or a couple of years ago, whenever it was, I remember seeing it going, Yeah, I was that was pretty cool. This it was with Vader and Tony, Tony St. Clair. Yeah, Tony St. Clair. So 
he was cool. He was he was he was a lot of fun to work with. He one of those guys that once again, even if you didn't have a spot called and you just put him in the hole, he knew a, he knew a counter. And if you did not know a counter, he would put himself in a position for you to counter him. And that, that's that's a pro. He knew it would make the match. A, a, tr- a pro goes in there for the match. Yes, you got to take care of yourself, but if you don't have a guy that can that can go, and you don't have a guy that understands um, the dynamic of what you're doing, you're going out there to it's an exhibition, basically. And, and, and no, not even basically. Just yes, it's an exhibition. We want to make it look as spontaneous. And real as possible, and that's what he did, man. He, you know, and I, he, again, with all this stuff, people saying, "Oh, they're stiff over in Japan, stiffer than they are in the states." No, no, they're solid. They are solid. But uh, everybody I worked with over there was a pro, and that that was the cool thing about it. And Liger was was definitely a pro. He was uh, he was great to work with. There. His reports online, they had two house show matches with him. Obviously, he gets the nod in both of them in October of 89. I don't know if you'll remember one-on-one matches with him, but that's what's reported online. Ah, yeah, I think I did work with him uh, a singles match. And um, once again, you know, the the locker rooms were separate and highly kayfabe over there. Uh, but the referee would come over and give you the finish and say, uh, Liger wants to know if there's anything you want to do. Okay, let's try this. How about this? And he says, okay, and he'll go tell him, and then he'll come back with a, uh, something else to add to that. And so, but but a lot of it was was by feel over there, and a lot of it was just uh, reading and 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 feeling things out, body language. And that's uh, uh, when Chono came to Continental first time. You know, we we'd never met. He was in a different locker room and. Came to the ring, didn't speak a word of English at that time. Uh, when we locked up, first thing he did was put himself in a headlock. I mean, he just he, he brought his head right in by my side and pulled my arm in. And I said, okay, great. You know, we don't have to talk about it. And he shot me off, tackled, dropped down. Uh, he went for the hip toss, and uh, I stayed there. He, he, I didn't have to tell him to, to look like he's going to cover me or just look over me. He just looked over me. I kicked him right off. And we called the match from there without saying a word. We just felt it. And that's that's a lot of times what uh, you did back then in Japan because you couldn't talk to him. And uh, sometimes they'd try you. Yeah, no doubt. Sometimes they would see if you would fight him back. And, you know, they, they would give you, give you some shots, forearms to the side of the head or whatever. If you sell it, you know, and if you didn't fight back, they'd keep going. But but you had to take your opportunity. And I knew enough to do that. And um, it became fun because you you knew, and if you could take your time and, and, and let it breathe, then the other guy would know what dance move to do next if you get my drift. He, he would know where to step next and, and and how to come in and hoping that you would react and then you'd react accordingly and and, and that was that was a lot of fun to do back then because most guys knew uh after about five or six years of working or even longer, um, they understood how to take your time and how to step where and and be prepared for for any anything, five to, to six moves, and, and wouldn't even know what it is, they would just go with it. As far as, you know, just your time over there, and it's interesting, like, because obviously the Japanese don't know the gaijins or maybe don't know all the gaijins, like, you know, how the guys get over there and stuff. So it's really kind of word of mouth, and it's like – Obviously, you know, it could be like Dory Funk Jr. or somebody that, or Harley Race or whoever that has this wealth of knowledge but also, also wealth of respect that they are going to help the guys, you know, from the United States like yourself and, and others get booked in Japan. Yeah, well, that, that though, uh, what would come with guys who had regular trips over there. They, they if, if a guy like, um, let's say, Dory Funk Jr., uh, was in the same territory as you, and he saw you and said, hmm, young guy, decent body, uh, decent shape, 
can work pretty good. He'll watch the matches. I remember Dory's world champion watching matches because he was uh, uh, the Funks in the early days helped establish Baba yeah, and Anoki in their team. We're always looking for fresh talent, and and Baba and Anoki both would, would have. They had contacts with uh, the NWA and AWA and WWF at that time, so they would call Vince McMahon. They and they would make trips over here, and they would have scouts over here, and they would the scouts would be guys like Ted DiBiase or Doctor Death or Murdoch and guys who who were established in Japan who would go places and and see uh, guys coming. in in and out and say, wow, man, hey, how would you like to go to Japan and take a gamble on the guy? Because the lifeblood of professional wrestling is the talent, and you need to interchange it because you don't want the same old, same old. Uh, you know, maybe you want somebody like Dynamite Kid, man. He he came from England to Calgary to Japan and Big Star everywhere he went because he was unique for that time, and he looked the part. He was, uh, he was that guy. And, you know, you found the places. Back then, Los Angeles, California, had an agreement with uh, Anoki. And, you know, when you signed your contract, um, they they got a piece of it. You know, so there were different promoters. And Vince, Vince Sr. did the same thing. Uh, Sam Munchnick in, in St. Louis. So there, there was, that was kind of the way, you know, the Japanese... Uh, companies always kept in good standings with with the nwa and and the wwf you know so um it, it's always been yes a closed business and even when the companies acted like they were mad at each other they still understood uh for the betterment of the business they needed to work together and and again going back to the the crown jewel and some of these other books that talk about it the the monopoly of the nwa the story of the nwa it talks about how this this thing uh had so many legs and so many arms and just so many uh connections uh that you wouldn't guess that, that this guy was a friend of that guy, but they couldn't let everybody know because they're working together. And, you know, even when Sam Munchnik was, was mad at Vince or Vince Sr. or Vince Sr. was mad at Vince, at, at Sam, they, they still worked together. And uh, it, it's strange because Ole Anderson certainly wouldn't do that. But, you know, those guys back in the, back in the day uh, with, with no cable TV, no cell phones, just, just – weekly towns they had to survive somehow and i think uh, a huge link in the chain was was a guy like sam munchnik who understood that and guys who understood that to get along you better get along and uh the ones who didn't fell by the wayside and that is a kind of a good stop point and a great point to bring up crown jewel you got to get the book go to midatlanticgateway.com or go to amazon.com and get a great book called crown jewel the nwa world championship 1959 to 1973 by dick Bourne, who was also the famed author of 10 pounds of gold and the big gold belt so highly recommend that also highly recommend a pro wrestling curriculum advice suggestions and stories to help the aspiring pro get to the next level yes i'm talking about dr tom's book how can they get this book now you can get this book on amazon.com by just typing in my name dr tom's book and it will come up or you can send me 25 dollars to Dr. Tom Pritchard at AOL.com on PayPal, and I will send you a personally signed autograph book of my curriculum. A, a new pro wrestling tea store has been set up for the JPWA where you can get a, a shirt or you can go to Dr. Tom's store on there as well. It is ProWrestlingTees.com. I highly recommend the Wanted, Dead or Alive Dr. Tom shirt. I think that's the best one on there. You can go to Patreon where a page has been set up. You can become a patron and support the JPWA. Also, check out the website, JPWrestlingAcademy.com for all the latest news from the JPWA, the awesome wrestling academy done by Dr. Tom and, of course, Glenn Kane Jacobs. You can follow me on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip, and you can follow Dr. Tom at Dr. Tom Pritchard. Dr. Tom, you got anything else coming up? All I got is the fourth, fifth, and sixth at AML in uh, 
Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It is North Carolina, correct? I believe mm-hmm. it is. Yes. Okay, yep. I get North and South all mixed up sometimes. Uh, right now, that's about it. We're about to finish up uh, the JPWA 2020 session uh, for the end of the year, November 20th. We are doing our graduation in Gladeville, Tennessee at the Gladeville Community Center with USA Championship Wrestling. And Burt Prentice has been very uh, gracious uh, in accepting us to come in and graduate uh, the the last class of 2020. And my God, 2020 has been a hell of a year, and these guys have been working hard. And uh, a big, huge shout-out and big, huge thank you to Burt Prentice and everyone at USA Championship Wrestling for November 20th in Gladeville, Tennessee. I'm looking forward to it, as is everybody else. And I'd like to thank everybody uh, for joining us this week. And we'll see you back right here next week on Take You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.